Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm the executive director and your host. In response to listener complaints that we didn't have an introductory montage or music or something, I assure you we're working on it, but we don't have it ready yet. Our guest this week is Todd Benzman, who is an analyst at the Center for Immigration Studies, who has long experience in security-related issues at the border. He was, for almost 10 years, an intelligence analyst at the Department of Public Safety in Texas, which is the agency that oversees the state police and the famous Texas Rangers. He was focusing on security threats at the border, specifically long-range smuggling from the Middle East and elsewhere. Before that, Todd was a foreign correspondent writing about some of the messier events that happened a number of years ago. I believe he covered one phase of the wars in the Balkans when Yugoslavia fell apart and various other actions like that that were a little too exciting for my taste, but he you know, was attracted to it and thrived in covering those matters. And now, as an analyst at the center, he writes about security-related and border-related issues, and he just visited several parts of the border, the Texas-Mexico border, and I thought it would be a good idea to have him on, and we can talk about what he saw down there that either isn't being emphasized or isn't being talked about at all in the regular news coverage. So, Todd, thanks for doing this. And I wanted to start with, first of all, where did you go on the Texas border and why those places instead of where all the other reporters are going? Well, since the election, I visited the El Paso sector, which encompasses the western tip of Texas into New Mexico. And after that, I visited the Del Rio sector, which is a couple hundred miles south, maybe 130 miles southwest of San Antonio, if you could picture that in your mind. And most recently, I went to the Big Bend sector. And what drove decisions to go there, aside from the fact that the southern tip of Texas, where the Rio Grande Valley is, is already very heavily saturated with media coverage, and we kind of already know what's there, is the fact that this is a very long border, almost 2,000 miles. And so there's a lot of other areas that would be impacted by what the president himself now calls a border crisis. But what particularly drove my decision to go to the Big Bend sector was the data, which was showing a very significant spike for that sector in single adult illegal immigrants who were crossing through there. Normally, in any given year, that is one of the lightest trammeled sectors. You might have 5,000 in an entire year that get apprehended. This doesn't count the gotaways, but maybe 6,000, 7,000, right in that range for entire years. But what we saw in just the first quarter of this year was 15,000 that were apprehended. And so that tells me that something very significant was happening there, and I wanted to go see what it was. And, you know, just for the listeners who may not be familiar with the geography, as you said, Big Bend is West Texas. They call it that because there's a Big Bend National Park, because the Rio Grande River then bends and goes north for a while before it bends again and goes south. And I've been there. We led a border tour there a number of years ago. And it's beautiful, but it is incredibly remote. I mean, it's difficult 
to get there from Mexico or the United States. There's no cities of any consequence. The roads aren't even all that significant. I mean, there's an interstate north of that area that you talk about is the goal for smugglers to get to, but it's like the surface of the moon sometimes out there. There's, there's, there's nothing going on. And so in order to get anywhere, it's actually you've got to traverse some really rugged territory, and that makes it forbidding. And that's why, as you said, in earlier years, there were very little traffic out there. Border Patrol agents, some of them actually really like working there because it's like the border used to be generations ago. Not a lot of people, but when there is somebody coming across, if you're an agent, you were able to really do the kind of Indian tracking, they call it sign cutting, that a lot of these guys like, where you would spend hours, days even following the footprints and the broken branches and all the clues. I mean, it was really, there was almost sort of a romance to it that is completely changed now because of what you're describing. Oh, I agree with all of that characterization of that region. It's a very challenging area for not just illegal immigrants to cross through with their smugglers, but also for Border Patrol agents out there to interdict them. Everything is just a long drive somewhere and with not much cell phone service. But in any case, what I found going on out there was this. Large groups of up to 100, 150 at a time, some of them smaller, but still large by historical perspective in that area, 50 and 25, as opposed to usually two or three back in the old, good old days, are pouring over that border with guided smuggling foot guides called guias. And they are moving through the canyons and valleys and over mountaintops on their way to Interstate 10 is the main goal. There are some feeder roads, state roads that go to Interstate 10 that they can be picked up on by associates of the smuggling organizations. And so there's this whole cat and mouse game that is going on with the smuggler-guided groups and Border Patrol. Border Patrol agents, I probably interviewed six or seven of them out there where you can find them, but they're, they're few and far between. In fact, I would call them swamped and overrun, no match at all for these large groups that are coming through, being dropped in tractor-trailer trucks that pull right up to the river with huge loads of immigrants and just being dropped there and running through. The game is, again, to get to these feeder roads and or Interstate 10, and then you have access to the entire interior of the country. The reason why most of the ones that are coming through here are single adults is because the families and children, or I'll just call them teens since most of them are teenagers, are being ushered in, welcomed in elsewhere, whereas adult Singles are being pushed back still under the pandemic policy known as Title 42 is intended to kind of keep the detention facilities clear of COVID. The Title 42 from the Trump era, March 2020, has been scaled back significantly to only cover most single adults. So when single adults are trying to cruise in in the Rio Grande Valley among families and teens 
the families and teens get let in and put on buses, and the single adults get sent back to Mexico, where they try again and again, and it gets expensive and frustrating. So they border sector shop. They find easier routes, and Big Ben turns out to be the place to be for that. So they're kind of looking for, they're sort of probing for weakness, in a sense. Sure. I mean, it's the path of least resistance. And, and for listeners, again, so people get an image in their head. I'm a geography geek, so I kind of, this is second nature for me, but it may not be for everybody. South Texas, call it the Rio Grande Valley. The Rio Grande, obviously, is the whole border of Texas, but only the part that's closer to the Gulf of Mexico, at the end of it, is usually referred to as the Rio Grande Valley. That's the closest place to Central America, so that if you're looking for the shortest route, that's where you would go, and that's what a lot of the, what we're seeing, like you said, the families and the teenagers doing that. To get to Big Bend, or even Del Rio, which is before that, I mean, we're talking hundreds of miles, maybe even a thousand miles, I guess, if you're going to El Paso, further, a longer trip, in other words. So what you're seeing, like you said, is the kids and families going to the closest place and turning themselves in, whereas the single men who are, are not making any kind of asylum claim for the most part, they're willing to go farther if that's going to increase their chances, as you said, sort of shop for the sector or the border, most likely to result in success. So when you were in, a lot of this you described in your blog post on our website at cis.org, you said there were a bunch of Central Americans that you talked to, you kind of pumped for information because they did get caught and turned around. So what kind of things did they tell you? What did you learn from them? Uh, sure. So it's, I always find it useful to talk to the immigrants themselves whenever I possibly can. They really sort of fill in the blanks. I went to a couple Mexican towns, but I found that on that side of the border, they're pretty hard to find normally because those are cartel, very tightly controlled. You can't cross yourself in that part of the border. You need to have a smuggler because the distances are so vast. You need to have somebody who knows the area. So when you show up on the Mexican side, it's usually under the control of the cartels. They'll put you in stash houses or hotels or whatever until they can move you across. But I was in a Mexican town called Ojinaga, which is right across from Presidio, Texas, looking for immigrants, not having much luck. And then one day, a group of eight Guatemalans and one Salvadoran had the misfortune from their vantage point of getting caught over there. Most do not get caught in Big Ben. They make it through to I-10. These ones got unlucky, and they were Title 42 back at the moment that I was at the bridge with a translator. So here they all come out, and I was had the opportunity to interview them, and they explained to me how the whole system works. First, they were fished out of their hometowns and villages by cartel La Linea salesmen, for lack of a better word. I guess you could call them recruiters, but that doesn't really fit. I just call them salesmen who are selling package deals. We can get you from here in Guatemala or San Salvador to anywhere in the United States you want to go for $11,000. And because so many have succeeded in buying these packages and succeeding, they were pretty easy marks. 
they raise the funds from family and friends, borrowing, uh, you know, asking for money. People manage to raise their $11,000 fee. They paid it to the agent, and then they were given very detailed instruction sheets about when buses to which places leave and how to transfer on a particular bus to another town to get through the Mexican National Guard in southern Mexico into the city of Chihuahua in north-central Mexico, which is a transportation hub for all points to the border. You could go very easily from there to Tijuana or down to Matamoros or anywhere along the border. And so at that point, the cartel smugglers, they take their itineraries back, which I take were laminated, very well-prepared affairs, and their cell phones so that they can't say where they're going after that. And then they are bused to Ohenaga. These ones, all nine of these ones were bused where they are put in hotels. It's all prepaid. They're not paying any money out of their pockets for the hotels. They stack up in these hotel rooms. I looked into one and saw there were like 10 cots crammed in there. So you can see how they're really jamming them in there. And when the rooms fill up, the cartels come with the vehicles, load them up and haul them about 50 miles south of Ohinaga to another crossing point called Lajita. And then they haul them in. And then they start their five to eight day journeys to Interstate 10. Unfortunately for this group, and probably the reason why they were caught, is because their guide abandoned them on the fourth day in, and they didn't know where they were going, and they wandered around to a ranch house, and the lady of the house called the Border Patrol, and that put an end to it. But we were able to get a good record of how it works in the Big Bend area. And the interesting thing is, and this is some earlier reporting you've done, I thought it was from up in El Paso where you did this too. This really is pretty organized. I mean, it's almost corporate in the sense that, you know, they've got these laminated sheets or instruction sheets that spell out in great detail, you go here, get this bus at this time and go there. And not only that, but like I said, the earlier reporting you've done is some of these cartels, maybe not in this case, have these wristbands color-coded wristbands for people to keep track of who has paid, who hasn't, what is the home address back in Central America of your person. In other words, I assume they've got like Excel spreadsheets or databases or something like that. This really is amazingly professionalized. In other words, it's not, you're not walking into a bar and say, here's some money, can you show me the way to sneak across? This is very systematized and like I said, and professional and almost almost corporate in the way it's organized and slick. Well, it's really big money right now. The cartels that control these areas are really cashing in. There are estimates, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars since the Biden administration, actually since bef- a little bit before the election. But I, you know, I mentioned in one of my stories about meeting a cartel smuggler under the bridge, the international bridge there in Ohenaga. And that was just a fortuitous meeting because my translator has his car repaired at a mechanic there in town. And he knows all the people that come and go at the mechanic shop. And 
the friend of the smuggler knew my translator, and so we were able to get an interview of the smuggler, and he called what's happening now the result of La Invitacion, which is the invitation, obviously. And when I asked what that meant, it meant, he said, it was when Biden started inviting the immigrants into the country. So even the smuggler guys, as well as the immigrants themselves, all discuss the Biden policies and promises. Like they're very aware of why this change is happening and why immigration has become an industrializable thing now a lot of money to be made. They all owe it to the new president. And I think the idea of their casually referring to Biden's comments and actions as the invitation really does put the lie to this idea that we, you know, the U.S. government can tell people not to come. Please don't come. They have public service announcements in Central America. But what the smugglers and what the prospective illegal immigrants are looking at is what's actually happening. In other words, actions matter. And the actions are the invitation. Because like you said, they're now letting in any underage illegal immigrant, supposedly unaccompanied, and almost all of the families, adults bringing kids with them. And in a sense, that proves that the invitation is real, and you can't pull back that invitation as Biden suggests he wants to do, without changing your actions. You can, in other words, it's not the invitation. The actions are, in a sense, the invitation, not just the words. Well, that, that's right. And I know that there's some sort of dispute about, uh, you know, what caused this, you know, did Trump cause it? I get, I get that the Biden administration would want to spin that as best they can, because, I mean, it, it's a bad look. It's a terrible look. But, you know, you talk to the immigrants, the people who are coming and they're making these life decisions. And when you, when, when you actually speak to them and ask them why they're making these life decisions, they'll go straight to Biden every time. It's not a secret to me. They're primary sources, and that's what they say, and that's what we report. I saw that recently Kamala Harris had surrounded herself, had a big meeting with immigration experts of various kinds in Washington somewhere, and you know she should have just surrounded herself with immigrants. Who, who are making these decisions, they'll tell you exactly why they're coming, and so will the smugglers. One of the things I thought was interesting, this was from your reporting trip to Del Rio, which is a little further downriver, in other words, from Big Bend. It's closer to South Texas, the next Border Patrol sector over. Still not big cities or very busy, but not nearly as remote as Big Bend. There's families crossing there and turning themselves in and what I thought was interesting you wrote about was this idea of what you're calling catch and bus. Instead of catch and release, it's kind of a catch and release, but that there's an organized, very busy network of mostly buses, some flights as well, that these family members are taking to spread themselves out over the United States after they're released by the Border Patrol. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this catch and bus phenomenon. Sure. Well, you know, Every sector of the border, every piece of geography along the border has its own unique attributes and characteristics that shape what's happening there. The Del Rio sector is a mix of family units. They're coming there because the ones that successfully cross broadcast back downstream that they have 
successfully crossed in that spot. And not only that, but that they are being taken good care of. They're being given legal documents and otherwise being provided with the means to, to distribute, to go wherever in the country they want to go. And that's what I found happening in Del Rio. Family units were crossing in, turning themselves in right away to the nearest Border Patrol agent. After a very short period in a processing center in Del Rio, they would be given these legal documents that said you can be here for a year. You have to report into some office wherever you end up to an immigration office. And then a non-governmental organization, the NGO, there was one there that would receive them from Border Patrol and help them get the funds wired in and communications out to relatives, friends around the world and around the country in places where they want to go. And depending on where they wanted to go, the NGO would arrange either a Greyhound bus in Del Rio that would go to San Antonio where they would transfer, or they would make charter bus arrangements if there were enough. A lot of the Haitians coming over wanted to go to Florida that they found it economical to just arrange for a charter bus to Florida. Every day there was a bus, at least one bus, leaving Del Rio or smaller buses taking folks to San Antonio where they could catch Greyhound buses. So there's this whole process, this again, at the other end of the industrialized immigration that's happening, illegal immigration on the front end, that's disseminating, distributing people across the country to towns and cities that we would ordinarily never see because, I mean, who looks inside buses, right? Except me, uh, you know, I did go on one, but that's kind of what's happening there. The other thing that was happening in the Del Rio sector is, again, the single adults were the ones being pushed back. So on the Mexican side, all that was left in towns like Acuna and Piedras that you could find were single adults who were frustrated after three, four, five, and six times trying to get through and evade Border Patrol, the the Title 42 there. Uh, but they were still able to do that eventually. The uh, Just to fill in, again, for people who are listening who may not be following this closely, the reason that these families are all being let go is that they are claiming that they fear persecution. And so they're kind of put into a pipeline where they're expected at some point to apply for asylum. And realistically, even if they do apply, and they're likely not to get it, but they're never going to leave. But one of the things that has been reported, and I think you wrote about it as well, but this is the case, uh, this has been reported in the regular legacy media as well, is that in some places in South Texas, there's so much traffic that they're not even giving them the formal summons, it's called a notice to appear, that if they don't follow, they will be ordered deported in absentia. They were just given a piece of paper saying, please check in with ICE and turn yourself in when you get where you're going. And if they don't, nobody really, they're not even in the system. Nobody knows what the story is. So that's one of the reasons this catch and bus can be so problematic is that it's spreading people out and the charter bus is really, I thought, was an interesting touch. In other words, it's not even just hopping on scheduled buses. They're chartering buses to move illegal immigrants around the United States. 
if they don't have this notice to appear, this summons, they may or may not turn themselves in to ICE. Probably not, frankly. They're not in the system. Nobody even knows that they're here. So they can't even be ordered deported unless they're arrested for something. And this administration has pledged not to arrest anybody who isn't convicted of a violent crime. So what you're talking about here, what you, what you saw, especially with the family members and the teenagers, is de facto permanent immigration to the United States confounding the intent of the immigration law, which is that there are numerical caps and numerical limits, and these people are basically, with the administration's consent, the administration effectively coordinating with the smuggling groups to make an end run around the immigration law and import lots of people into the United States who are going to be here permanently and never leave. You know, a couple things about that. One is, I always ask when I meet a, an immigrant to see their paperwork, and they very often oblige. And what I saw were papers that were freeing them on their personal recognizance. Others were, were something that looked like NTAs, notices to appear different kinds later on. And you know we know that the ICE interior enforcement has been gutted. So even when they don't appear or they don't report, they, there's always a date and time, you know, please report to this office in Indiana, Gary, Indiana or whatever for on such and such a date. If they don't do that, it's very unlikely that anybody's going to go after them in ICE in Indiana. The other thing that I'd note is that a lot of the Haitians and Cubans appear to have resources, and they were flying from Del Rio Airport on special American Airlines jets that were brought in just to pick them up and fly them to other states when they had the money. And the reason for that... So these weren't scheduled, these weren't scheduled flights? They were almost no. like charter flights? They were, they were American Airlines sent flights to Del Rio. They don't fly there. It's a small airport, but for this purpose, they were brought in. I, I don't know what the circumstance, it could have been something like, we're going to do our part for humanity or something and send some airplanes down there. But a lot of these folks are well-dressed and had iPhone 12s and the latest and greatest of everything. And when you talk to them about that, you find that they had been living prosperous, stable, protected lives in places like Brazil and Chile and Ecuador for years, and that they decided to come to the United States now because why not? The border was open and they had friends and relatives and Biden was going to let them in. And so they already had asylum and protected lives. They'll come in and they'll make claims about they can't go back to Haiti. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's something, something worth noting. Yeah, and people get turned down for asylum if they're firmly established in another country like this. But as you had suggested, even if they get turned down, nobody's going to go looking for them. So taking Biden up on his invitation makes sense for, say, a Haitian who has built a new life in Brazil, who wants to come here anyway. It's a good bet. The odds are pretty good for them, so it's worth a try. Yeah, they're trading up, and why not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, <laughs> right. when, when, when the getting's good, you know, the only other thing that I, I thought would be was interesting is that, you know, the Biden administration has 
place this bet with the Mexican government and to a certain extent the Guatemalans too to militarize those borders down there so that the Biden administration doesn't ever have to risk the perception that it is physically beating up on immigrants to keep them out. They're going to have the Mexicans do that through its National Guard and the Guatemalans through its militarized police forces down there. And so this was actually a Trump-era policy establishment of the National Guard down there. And obviously, since we're seeing such a mass push of illegal immigration over our border, those people are getting through that National Guard. And I was curious to know why and how they were able to get through it. And I interviewed a lot of immigrants on the Mexican side of the Del Rio sector about how they did that. And I came away with five different methods. Now, keep in mind that the Biden administration, it's very secretive about what we've given them to agree to do that, to increase their National Guard to 10,000 in these roadblocks that are in layered defense in depth from the Guatemalan border north through Chiapas and Veracruz and some of the southern states. But I'm guessing that it's a big chunk of the $4 billion that they promised at the very beginning for opening days of the administration. Also, what we're offering Mexico is, what was it, a couple million doses of vaccine. And they announced that at the same time as they announced stepped up Mexican National Guard presence in southern Mexico. And then everybody said, no, there's no quid pro quo, but you know nobody believes that. Obviously, they were trying to bribe them. The interesting point is that, yes, Trump did pressure Mexico to do more on its own southern border, and Mexico responded. The point, I think, to make there is that that effort by Mexico or Guatemala can, in fact, be useful, but only if it's rowing in the same direction as American policy. In other words, if we're saying, no, you're not going to get in, we're going to bounce you out, and the Mexicans are trying to stop people at the south, the southern Mexico, they essentially the two policies are complementary and they're working together. What the Biden administration wants to do is keep a supposedly open arms policy at the border, but pay the Mexicans and the Guatemalans to make sure nobody gets that far. It's really, I mean, it's kind of dishonest and sort of sleazy, but that's, you know, that's what politicians do. Yeah, it's also completely ineffective without the remain in Mexico policy and the deportations. It's like a three-legged stool where the Biden administration took the two legs out and left the one there. It's just... Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, in other words, the pull that you can get into the U.S. is there, and then the Mexicans are supposed to try to stop that, and it's just, it just can't work. So thank you, Todd Benzman has been our guest. His writing is all on our website, cis.org, where he's written about his reporting trips along the border, what he's learned there. It's actually fascinating stuff. The recent ones are actually almost like magazine article features. In other words, they're interesting reads. This isn't just kind of dry wonky stuff, which there's a place for that. We do a lot of that, and that's fine. But these uh, pieces that you've written, Todd, really are compelling and worth reading just for their own interest. So I appreciate it, Todd, and we're going to look forward to 
where you're going to go next and talk up smugglers and other people, and we'll have you on to talk more about that when you do that. Thanks a lot, Todd. Thank you. Finally, I just wanted to talk briefly about a piece I'd written at National Review that isn't about the specific news that were, you know, that what's in the news now, but a kind of broader issue. As background, our role here at the center is not only to talk about the problems and impacts and solutions to illegal immigration, but to look at immigration overall, because most immigration is legal. Far and away, most of it is legal. I mean, of of the immigrants in the United States now, probably something like three quarters of them are legal immigrants, not illegal aliens. And so all of the concerns that people have about immigration, whether it's schools, government services, jobs, security, assimilation, it's all the same, whether the immigrants are legal or illegal. It's not identical. There's slight differences, but it's basically the same issue. And so there was a piece in the Washington Post, an opinion piece by Henry Olson, and I respect the guy. This is the reason I responded to his piece. He was criticizing someone who had written that the immigration pause in the middle of the 20th century, from the 20s until the 60s, really, until early 70s, that he said that was that proving of that, that praising the effects that that pause had was bad, was, you know, white supremacy or kind of the usual adjectives people use. I didn't expect that from him because the mechanism for cutting back on immigration in the 20s was these national origin quotas. In other words, immigration, there was a cap placed on it, but those who could come in, there were quotas for different countries, and most of those quota slots went to countries in Northern Europe. And it was a way, basically, to reduce immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe and from the Middle East, where my grandparents came from. And therefore, he said, because that was the means of reducing immigration, that the whole idea, the whole action of reducing immigration was illegitimate and shouldn't be praised. That's what I took issue with. The Center for Immigration Studies and me personally have always been opposed to any kind of national origins or religion-based or ethnically-based or whatever filter for immigration. That's a mistake. It's wrong. But the 1920s immigration law, 1924 law, had very beneficial effects. It was doing the right thing in the wrong way. And it did, in fact, reduce immigration dramatically. The 40 years after the law passed, we took in something like 7 million immigrants. So it didn't stop immigration. But the 40 years before the law saw a level of immigration that was more than triple, something like 23 million people we took in. So it was a roughly two-thirds cut in immigration. And that had enormously beneficial effects, as the piece that Olson was criticizing said. It you know, helped pull workers from other parts of the country into the modern dynamic industrial economy rather than just having immigrants come in from Europe to take those kind of jobs. It created the kind of unified national identity that helped us make it through the Depression and the war, and it made possible a broadly shared post-war prosperity of sort of as one people. So my point here is that the immigration pause was useful even if it was done badly or using the kind of wrong 
tools. And we need another immigration pause. We wouldn't be doing it the same way. National origins quotas are an idea best left to the past, although we actually have some national origins elements that the immigration expansionists defend in our current immigration policy, the visa lottery, for instance, the Lautenberg Amendment, uh, which relates to refugee admissions. But there's no question that we actually do need another pause, but done better. The pause worked in the mid-20th century, and what we need to do is adopt the parts of that legislation that were beneficial, which is to say reducing the overall numbers while discarding the elements of it that were bad, that were wrong, specifically the national origins quotas. I want to thank everybody for uh, listening. We're going to be back next week for parsing immigration policy. And for those of you who are interested, go to our website at cis.org for all of the other content that we publish. We have videos of our interviews, videos on specific topics, long backgrounders, short blog posts. It's all there for those of you who are interested. This is Mark Krikorian, Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off for this week. Thank you.